This is the Puck Junk Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Puck Junk Hockey Podcast. I'm Sal Barry, and with me today is Tim Parrish, and we are going to talk about the All-Star Weekend that just took place recently. We're also going to talk about the NHL announcing that it will participate in the next two Winter Olympics, and we will talk about what the NHL is planning uh, in lieu of next year's All-Star Game. They got something different planned. We'll talk about that. We'll also do another retrospective from the 93-94 season. As you know, it is the 30th anniversary of the 1993-94 season, the year that the New York Rangers won the Stanley Cup. Of course, Clemente's not here today. He's at a Rangers game, and we'll talk about Rangers stuff closer to uh, the 30th anniversary of that. But also, we had a bunch of cool Different, unique hockey card sets come out that year. This episode, we're going to talk about the 1993-94 Fleer Ultra set. So, Tim, how are you doing? Have you fully recovered from the All-Star weekend? Oh, yeah, just total All-Star hangover going on. I don't know. I don't know that I'll ever recover, actually. Three days of just All-Starring it up, huh? Um, three days of something. That's for sure. It was like a tale of multiple things that the coverage of all of that. So I think we should, we, we should dive into that here. Like in, instead of a tale of two cities, it was a tale of three networks all owned by Disney, but still like three different networks. You had yeah. ESPN two, you had ESPN and then you had ABC. Yes. Not to mention Plus thrown in for good measure. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I had to actually rely on Plus a little bit because I actually recorded the All-Star game on Saturday because I had plans. So I only watched the first game, and then uh, I recorded it. And then when I went to rewatch it, of course, the last 10 minutes, the last, I think the last half of the final game got lopped off because it exceeded its time slot. So, of course, my recorded ended sharp after three hours and I had to like go to ESPN plus and then I had to like watch that game and then I had to like queue it up to that spot but fortunately um I think the, the games were like separate separated so I was able to just pull that one game if I remember correctly but yeah why don't we start with the fantasy draft which was a fun idea that they did you know like what like a decade ago they did it for like a couple of years and then they stopped doing it, like when they switched to the three-on-three format. So this is the first time that they've done a fantasy draft with the three-on-three format of the All-Star game. So um, I, I know you were very upset about how that all went down. So why don't you explain to the listeners why you were triggered by this uh, fantasy draft? That's a pretty powerful word right there. Shouldn't throw that around lightly. I was... Uh... I wouldn't call it triggered. I was. I would just simply say that a great idea, a great concept. Going back to the, you know, the fantasy have the captains pick their teams from the pool players that were available. That's a great idea. I think it should be done like that all the time. Why not? I mean, if we're not going to go back to full on Wales versus Campbell, 
there's no reason to not do it fantasy wise. Not to mention the fact that that ties in with how people watch sports anymore, especially if you're going to try to appeal to the younger generation that that's all they do pretty much. So I like that idea, but I liked it better the old way where they had guys up on stage having a good time, having fun, poking fun at each other, saying stuff. It was all recorded and everybody had a strange red solo cup in their hand that were trying to hide it from the camera, but you could clearly see them and, I don't know what was in there. Sprite? Coca-Cola? I don't know. Mountain Dew Code Red. Could have been Code Red, yeah. But, yeah, so it was like players having fun. And, you know, the one year where Phil Castle just sat there till the very end, it was like the running joke. No one, no one could pick Phil until the end. So, like, this one, you had sort of the same thing, only it was just a big production. Just a super big production. So here's the thing. I think the NHL did a decent job with the idea and the concept around it and the production of it. But I don't know how many times I have to say ESPN can't get out of their own way when it comes to hockey coverage. It's just bad. It's bad. It's really not good. Audio problems and video problems and queuing stuff up and having the right person talk at the right time and all the bleed over in the background of of stuff. Look, you want to try to get the microphones involved with the teams talking to each other. Okay, who are we going to pick next? Who this, that, and the other. But clearly every time they put a microphone anywhere over, you could hear that it was basically, yeah, this is probably contrived and was made up ahead of time, and they already knew what they were going to do. I mean, Team Toronto Maple Leafs, which was – Matthew's team, which became all of the Maple Leafs. And Bieber, I mean, the two of them together looked like they would have rather been anywhere else other than there at the time. Meanwhile, you have Team Hughes and their celebrity captain is Michael Bublé, who was like super jacked up about everything, like happy to be there. He was having a good old time, and it was great. Like, like, let's have more of that. But it was just, I don't know. And then it was like they couldn't wait to get to a commercial break every time because you got to pay the advert. The advertisers got to pay for this. And I mean, it was just the coverage was not it was just not good. It was not good. Well, I would disagree with you on Bieber. He he seemed to be enjoying himself, but maybe I wasn't looking that hard. I mean, at there's the a game, say- yes. at the draft, not so much. Well, there's a saying that like athletes want to be rock stars and rock stars want to be athletes. And that's why they tend to get along real well with each other. But I think the coverage by ESPN, and this was on ESPN too. So they couldn't even be bothered with real ESPN. Just like, yeah, ESPN too. I don't have kids, but my friends with kids now tell me about when their kids become teenagers and how it's like pulling teeth to try to get them to talk like during dinner time. How was your day? Good. What did you do? Nothing. That's what ESPN's hockey coverage is. Do you is have like. my house bugged? Yeah, pretty much, right? Everybody I know with kids that are like teenagers, they just tell me the same story. Good, fine. What'd you do? Nothing. You know, yeah, and that's- a rare chance I can get all five of us sit down for dinner. That's what I do. I, and it's like an interrogation. I sit there and go around the room like, what'd you do at school today? Any fun stories? What'd you learn? Were there any fights? What'd you eat for lunch? And then I go to the next one. Not so much with my oldest because he's in college, but I still ask, you got any homework? 
You got any projects you're working on? What's a weird thing your professor said today? So it's like, I, you know, I try to force them to talk, but yeah, it's bad. So that's how I feel about the ESPN coverage, right? Where they just, it's like, well, it's 9.59 and 59 seconds, time for college basketball talk. You know what I mean? Like, oh, it's 10 o'clock. Hockey's over, folks. You know what I mean? Like, that's just Oh, yeah. They waste no time flipping. Yeah. They can't wait to get the F out of, like, the hockey coverage and and get to anything else. I mean, my joke is, like, at 5.59.59, it's still Stephen A. Smith shouting about sports. And then at, like, 6 o'clock, it's ESPN Hockey Night Tonight. And then at, like... 10 in one second you know or 10 p.m and one second after that it's like oh now it's time for sports center we're going to start with college basketball well and now with the rumors that espn is getting fully in bed with the nfl going forward i mean what does that mean for any any other sports i mean yeah college has tons of networks where they can you know, roll games over onto those networks, but the regular fans, they don't have those. You got to pay for the extra sports packages and everything else. You know, we've talked numerous times about ESPN plus having all the games Mm -hmm. and everything where it's a miniature version of center ice. And those are fine because it's the, the coverage is the team coverage. So you usually get one or the other team's feeds for home or away and you can turn it on and you got the television feed of whatever that team is. Unless it's the game of the week that's broadcast on ESPN, or if it's like a, a spillover special one where it's the actual ESPN coverage, you don't have to deal with that. But, you know, with the All Star game and ESPN having it as two of the broadcasters, you know, TNT, obviously they would switch off. So this was ESPN's year to do it. The way they handled that, I just didn't like it. They could have handled it so much better. They could have done the interviews better, the pacing could have been better. That didn't work for me. Carrying forward from the draft into like the actual skills competition and the stuff that was supposed to go on the next day. Okay, it was a little different. But before you get to that, let me just say this about the draft really quick, because I think it was a fun idea. Great idea, if you ask me. But first of all, the whole thing was rushed because they wrapped it in like an hour. It just always felt like they were trying to move it along, move it along. The second thing is, is that the camera angle was just terrible because in past drafts, they've had a podium. They'd have like the player come up and say, you know, we're going to draft this guy, right? Like Patrick Kane saying, we're going to draft my boy, Dustin Bufflin, right? And you see that it cuts to Jonathan Taves looking disappointed, like, oh, you're not picking me, right? So I mean, funny stuff like that. But you always had the captain, the assistant captain, and the celebrity captain had their back to the camera. And what was the host, uh, Kevin Weeks? He was one of them. Yeah. So then he's interviewing them. So the camera's on him. And then we have the other three people with our backs to us. That wasn't a very good camera angle. You almost needed to have them all facing the same way or have them come up to the podium saying, yeah, we're taking so-and-so. And then have Weeksy off to the side and say, all right, why did you draft this guy? Because he's my teammate. Oh, okay. That's what I thought, right? And then at the end, when they're like, okay, the last four picks, you're going to just open an envelope with the team that you're going to be on. That was just kind of dumb. That was like, well, we don't want to hurt anybody's feelings and make them feel like they were picked last. So the last four players are going to find out who drafted them at the same time. 
But it wasn't even at the same time because then they were just like, you open your envelope, you open your envelope, you open your envelope. Okay, well, we can infer what team you're on now because you're the last person opening your envelope. So that was kind of dumb. I mean, like anything, it needs work. But I think the bigger problems wasn't for lack of trying. It was because ESPN gave it a 60-minute time slot. And a lot of uh, corners were cut to just make it fit that. Yeah, and if you're going to do something that's going to be that big of a production and over the top, you need more, way more time than that. Mm-hmm. You can't convey that over in, in 60 minutes. And I kind of like the tag team that they did between Hockey Night in Canada and the ESPN. So like, like the hosts of that, you had David Amber and you had Bucci, both like kind of going off each other. And then you had, like you said, you had Kevin Weeks and, you know, you'd occasionally get Emily Kaplan would pop in to do little things here and there and stuff. So overall they had everything there. Like all the components were there. It's just, it was so bad. It was so rough. It was just like, I wanted it to be good so bad. And I'm just like, uh, that's how I felt afterward. That's exactly how I felt. Uh. Uh, so let's talk about the skills competition. That was pretty cool. My only criticism is that with 12 players, it was just very limited. Like, you know, these are the 12 players that are participating. And it was just like, okay. Like, I get why they use 12 players because that's a manageable number. And like almost everybody participated in almost everything. And you're getting the best of the very best. But at the same time, I just felt like, it was good, but at the time, sometimes I got a little bored of it. I don't know. Maybe it's more boring when you have 44 guys competing in it instead of 12. Yeah, and in years past, not everybody's wanted to compete and everything. They've picked and choose what they wanted. So they made this similar, but they limited the pool of participants. So having 12 guys pick their whatever their favorite four events were out of out of eight events or whatever, it was like, Okay, why isn't Crosby participating? Why why isn't, you know, why isn't somebody else out there? I think the biggest disappointment was the fact that Crosby wasn't competing. Now he wasn't even at the draft, which a bunch of people complained about. And I'm like, okay. This guy does more for hockey and charities and all kinds of stuff. He had a previous engagement. He was practicing in the morning like trying to stay in shape and stay in game ready and everything else leave the guy alone but anyway i'm a homer so people are going to call me a homer and whatever but he does show up the next time he's not supposed to participate and i heard a bunch of people complaining about that but i'm like he wasn't picked like this was predetermined ahead of time who was going to be in it so instead they get him and bedard involved and they're going to be the guys that pass the puck during the one-timers which by the way no one took a one-timer. Did you notice that? Mm-hmm. They were all cradling the puck and basically shooting wrist shots. Like, nobody was taking these, like, massive slappers like they're supposed to take. It was just like, oh, here's, like, a gentle pass. Gentle pass. And no, nobody was, like, firing it on the net. So, Well, the thing is, is that a, a one-timer... You can have accuracy with a one-timer, but really the the idea of the one-timer is it's about 
surprising the goalie and just being faster than the goalie, right? And with the wrist shot, it's like basically picking your shot, aiming your shot. It's a more tactical thing. So there was no element of surprise there, right? Because there was no goalie to surprise. They had to hit like that top edge or one of those like corners or whatever. So they had the car wash flaps across the top where you had to hit it through the the different sections and score points. Which I thought was cool. But the thing is, is that like, so you don't need an element of surprise when you're basically shooting on a shooter tutor. There's not a goalie who's on one side and you're just, you know, your teammate slides it over to you and you just one time it in, right? Like, or, or you're just hitting it hard and hoping that it just goes through everybody. You know what I mean? This was more like they had to No, but if it's set up that way, like if you're saying this is the one-timer competition, treat it that way. Do it like it's a one-time. Yeah, you're not surprising anybody, but at least just take a blast at the shot. Well, then make it about how hard you hit the puck and not about trying to hit a specific part of the net. Because if you have to hit a specific part of the net, you're going to use whatever shot you're most comfortable with. And if you're trying to just do the hardest shot, the fastest shot, I guess that's the same thing, or like beat a goalie, then, you know, with like a speedy shot, then a slap shot becomes the weapon of choice. Yeah. So I like the hardest shot competition. They kept that. So that was still good. I think a lot of guys think they can hit shoot harder than they really can. <laughs> but so that was good. I definitely liked the uh the, the breakaways, the one on ones with the goalies. I liked how they fun. set that up this time. Yeah, where that they had fun, you know, the row of pucks close up that they had to take, and then they had to go back to the blue line because you could tell about halfway through those guys were gassed. They were gassed, and you know most of them were actually trying. At least on that event, there were others that chose not to try at certain parts of the evening. But you know, what are you gonna do? Can't make them try. You lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. And he was just there, so he didn't get fined. But quit picking on Nikita Kucherov. Not picking on him. Yes, you are. He definitely stuck out like a sore thumb and made it known that he wanted nothing to do with anything. He even waved to the crowd when they were booing at him. Well, they're booing him because there's like a, a Tampa-Toronto rivalry. Because Tampa usually finishes at the top of the pack and Toronto usually just ekes into the playoffs. So, you know, or maybe, they're I don't always... Know, you paid hundreds of dollars for a ticket to watch this guy go out there and dog it? I know it's an all-star skills competition, but whatever. They're there to watch Austin Matthews. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. So, but yeah, I liked all the events. I thought they were set up well. I thought the coverage was a little better on the skills competition. I think they could have done maybe a little more with the playing around kind of thing, but I think that that one was a lot, a lot better. I like the direction they took the skills competition. There wasn't a whole lot of like corny, foofy things like shooting pucks at a surfboard and dunk tank and stuff. Not that that's bad, but these are skills that are foundational type skills of the hockey players. So if you want the best hockey players to compete at what they're good at, certainly one of those things is not a dunk tank. You know, it's skating super fast, accuracy, you know, hard shots, you know, all of that kind of stuff. So I think it, everything integrated that and that, especially at the end, that obstacle course, the way they had that set up, that was pretty cool. I like that. That was ridiculous. 
was cool, but it was just too much. It was looked pretty difficult. And again, guys were gassed at that one too. Yeah, so skills, it was better. You could tell they were starting to warm up to it as far as the production crew went. But then we got the actual games. Oh, yeah. So let me give just the score recaps of those games. So uh, as you know, it was uh, they're three-on-three games. You have three games, two 10-minute halves for 20 minutes total. So game one, Team McDavid beat Team McKinnon 4-3 to three in the shootout. Game two, Team Matthews beat Team Hughes 6-5 to five in the shootout. Game three, Team Matthews beat Team McDavid 7-4. to four. And the all-star MVP was Austin Matthews, who had two goals and one assist in that third game. Some people were thinking it might be Alex Dabrinkit because he had three Should goals and an assist. But, eh, two goals and an assist in the final game is probably a little more important than what the Cats did. Although Dabrinkit was pretty awesome in, in the all-star game. But the other games were won in the shootout, so they were really close. And this one wasn't as close if they won by three goals, but it was still pretty close. I mean, I think the games are entertaining. I watched them. I watched the first one live. The other two I watched like the next day because I had plans already. I mean, I thought it was okay. I was entertained. I, I liked it. I still like the three-on-three format. I mean, it moves quickly. I mean, there was one game where there were like three goals in an 18 second span i mean it was just ridiculous um and that's what we want to see we want to see the skating and the scoring and that's what it's about and that's really okay well in the first game too i mean team mckinnon was up three to one the entire game and then at the very end with like four minutes left mcdavid pulls the goaltender and they scored two goals with the goalie pulled, tied the game, and took it into the shootout. So that was kind of exciting. Like you thought it was over, and the whole time I'm sitting there watching, like these guys don't care until the very last game. It's like the last couple of years. Like nobody cares until like the last game, and then they're playing their butts off at the last game because they want to split the money. But the uh, yeah, the games were good. I will say this, the coverage was a lot better. I wasn't a big fan of the studio coverage because I feel like those guys were just phoning it in and most of the time they didn't know what to do or say. Like it wasn't scripted at all and they had no idea what to talk about so they just made stuff up. But I do feel like that a lot of times when Messier's talking. Like sometimes I don't think he knows where he is but not sure if that's like long-term CTE or, or whatever, but could just be unrelated or that he's just bad on TV. Could be that too. I don't know. Messi only works. Messi only works as an analyst when he has Chelios to riff off of. Because yeah, I think he guys, has to have that foil that yeah. that that complements each other. Because well, him yeah, and PK don't work. Right. Well, no, but Chelios and Messier are friends, and they like each other, and they like to reminisce, and they they kind of have this nice kind of back and forth thing going. It's not like over the top crazy. It's just kind of like like a nice rapport, you know. Yeah. PK never fit in with Chelios and Messier, and now with Chelios not there, there's even more of a stark contrast between Messier who seems very understated, and PK, who's like, PK, you know? 
What was it though? Changing the subject for a second though. I think it was maybe maybe it was last year, maybe when Chelios was still on the ESPN broadcasts, and Messier said something about winning a championship, and Chelios talked about winning a Stanley Cup or something, and PK said, "Oh, thanks guys, thanks for rubbing it in," and he was joking, but. Messier just said very like matter of factly, well, you go ahead. And and he wasn't being a jerk, like I have a championship and you don't, but he he basically like he was just like, Well, if you want to talk about it, talk about it. And you know, PK grinned because he didn't win a, a Stanley Cup, but I mean he's been a champion at other levels, I'm sure. But I mean, Messier has a sense of humor, but he's very understated. You know what I mean? Like he needs, like you said, he needs that foil. PK, I feel like, should be hosting a 30-minute show. Like, yeah, almost like a coach's his, corner type of yeah, thing. Yeah. yeah, no, I agree with you. He's he's a personality that fits in like that, or be a host of some other pre-done show. Like, not that ice time is for everybody on NHL Network, but it's more of like the the kids show. It's like NBA Inside Stuff was something similar to that, where he like interviews players and talks to people and goes around and does, you know, like more of a personality type show like human interest type stuff than that because it may not be the same one you're talking about but i remember the one it was probably like right before playoffs started or maybe it was during playoffs they had the stanley cup in the studio and um bessier was like it's like now pk when you pick up the stanley cup not that you had an opportunity during your career but you never grab it by here you grab it by the bottom and chelios is like standing off to the side just laughing because they're trolling him, talking, this is how you pick up a Stanley Cup. And it was pretty funny, but that was last year. So yeah. yeah um, I could still see that animosity that's there. And it's I don't think PK doesn't like Messier. I just think Messier just doesn't know how to deal with PK. I just think he doesn't get it. And that's part of the issue. So like they they clash. Whether the tension's there or not, visually, as a hockey fan, you can see it. You know, it'd get along really well. I think PK and Ronick would get along pretty well. I think they'd—they're both like kind of silly. Maybe, but they're maybe. Two, they're two alphas, so that might be. Um, uh, might be tough. Yeah, maybe you're right. Although it seems to work for TNT because you know they have a host, a B, and a bunch of A's, like up against each other. It's the host's job to keep everybody's ego in check and corral them and, and focus them, and, and that's what he does really well. We're talking about Liam yeah. on, on on TNT. Yeah, the but, TNT broadcast works. You know, with those personalities, it just somehow it works. And I think it's a much smoother – I mean, even when it goes bad, it's still good because they're able to riff enough on it to ignore, like, don't look over here. Look over here. Well, you feel like they're having fun. And right. on ESPN, you feel like they want to have fun, but they're not allowed to, or they don't right. want to have fun in Messier's case. Yep. It's like over here, they're having fun talking about the game they love. And over here, they're working. And there's a staunch card contrast between the two. But I, I would argue ESPN loses it for me. I would argue that on TNT, Gretzky wants to not have fun. He wants to work, but they kind of force him to have fun. And so he kind of goes along with it. You know what I mean? Like you ever kind of get that vibe a little bit? Because in the Gretzky. very beginning I did, but yeah. not anymore. He's loosened way up. And the more interviews and stuff that he's done in the last 
probably a year or two because he's been out in the open more and you see him more often. I think he's gotten more comfortable in front of the camera and it's, it's worked out, I think better for him. So to me that works, but you know, ESPN's coverage of the game, like it was fine. Like the announcing was good. I didn't have a problem with that. I didn't, them keep cutting to the benches all the time and shoving a microphone in everybody's face every five seconds. That was, I was getting a little tired of that, but as long as they would talk to the celebrity captains, like I was fine. Cause like the players seemed annoyed by getting the microphone put in their face, but like the celebrity captains, they still talk like Will Arnett, you know, of course he's going to crack jokes and and do whatever. He was great. He was great. I mean, I don't know what weird, wild, endangered animal Bieber killed to make that coat of his, but that was something. That red and pink thing, furry thing that he was wearing. Yeah, that was, uh, well, uh, whatever, you know. I found out you can buy that coat. Oh, I'm sure you can. Yeah, no, because he talked about the designer who made it. So he was clearly shilling for the designer in that coat. It's on sale 50% off. You can buy one today. Only $2,400. Oh, is that all? That's all. Well, PK said he wanted one, so maybe he'll buy one. Oh, I mean, he can afford it. All right, so we've talked about this for a half an hour now. Can we move on? We could have moved on 29 minutes ago. Okay, so they're going to replace next year's All-Star Game with something called the Four Nations Face-Off, which is going to be a tournament between teams of players from the USA, Canada, Sweden, and Finland. So four teams, uh, never mind if you're a Czech player, never mind if you're a Russian player, never mind if you're another ethnicity or nationality, because you're not going to be in this tournament. It's set to take place February 12th through 20th of 2025. It's going to be seven games played over that span. So. I don't know all the logistics of it, but it sounds to me kind of like a Canada Cup or World Cup of Hockey, but smaller and over just like nine days instead of like two weeks. I don't know if I like this idea as like a midseason break. You know what? Try it once. If it sucks, don't do it again. You know, that's the thing. Like the whole Wales Conference, Campbell Conference or Eastern Conference, Western Conference format was getting old and then they did North America versus the world and then that got old and then they went back to this and then they did that and you know what I mean so it's okay to mix up all-star games you know I mean once upon a time it used to be the all-star players versus the previous year's Stanley Cup champion that worked for the time I could never see that happening now in the NHL I would love that but it probably wouldn't happen now so you know, this might be a good idea. Really, it's just kind of to get people's appetites wetted for the 2026 and uh, 2030 Olympics, which will allow NHL players back into it for the ice hockey tournament portion of the Winter Olympics. So we're going to have kind of like a mini Olympics next year, Olympic ice hockey. And then the next year after that, We'll have like the 2026 Winter Olympics and uh, yeah, we'll have a return of NHLers in that. And that'll be exciting because it'll be the first Olympics to have Connor McDavid and Austin Matthews and a whole bunch of guys whose 
careers have started since uh, the 2014 Winter Olympics. What are your thoughts yeah. on all of this? Well, yeah, and like you said, it's kind of like a primer to get ready for the international tournament. And people are always clamoring for these best-on-best tournaments, and you got to do something. I think the Four Nations tournament is a good idea. Um, the fact that they're excluding all the other countries, I mean, yeah, I get it. It's logistics and all that kind of stuff, but you got some of the best players in all of the NHL that aren't going to be eligible to play because they simply come from not one of those four countries. So, but I think I'll probably be more on board at the closer you get to it, the more excitement's around it. You know, right now, just looking at it on paper, you're like, huh, interesting. Why would we not have all the rest of these countries involved in there? But again, I get it. It's a logistics thing. Um, it would make sense to do it this way. And since they don't know where they're going to have it, I mean, obviously it's going to have to be somewhere in Canada or the U.S. or maybe both. But I like the idea. I mean, I do. Again, I wish they would go back to the World Cup. I think that was fun. But I don't think we're ever going to see that again. Just because of the fact that we're going to be involved more in the Olympics as long as they keep paying the bill. And that was the key. You know, saying that we're going to go back to the Olympics because every time the Olympics comes around, what is the argument? Is the NHL going to participate? And we wait and wait and wait, and we're listening for Bill Daly to say something and Batman to say something, and you never hear anything. And they're like, oh, we're looking into it. We're looking into it. You know, we're trying to figure it out. You know what it always boils down to? It always boils down to who's going to pay for it. The NHL does not, under any circumstance, want to foot the bill anything involved with these international tournaments that aren't run by the nhl so the olympics anything iihf they don't want any part of so if you're going to take players you're going to pay for the travel you're going to pay for their housing you're going to pay for their food you're going to pay for all of that if it's coming out of the iihf they have no problem with letting the players play but if it's a hint that the nhl has to pay for some of it that's when the argument's always like, ah, we don't know. We don't know if we can go. I don't know if there's time. We don't know. And you run into that. So it is interesting, though, that that when they were talking in, with the State of the Union address that they always give during the All-Star game, that uh, going to the Olympics, not next year, but the following year, it's in Milan. And it's going to the hockey portion of it's going to be played on NHL size ice rather than international size ice. I found that to be a very interesting tidbit of information that was thrown out there. Not that well, why it not? tips I mean, the scales a little bit more towards the North American players, but let's face it, the North American players are better anyway. I mean, it is kind of interesting when they have to play on international ice because that changes the dynamics of the game a little bit. It, it, it opens it up a little bit more, and there's been the argument that, yeah, the European players, especially the non-NHLers, are used to that, the, the 200 by 100 ice surface instead of the 200 by 85 foot ice surface. But, I, I mean, I don't think it really matters. The Good, good, great players are going to adapt no matter what. And whether it's a, a, 
a hundred foot rink by 50 foot rink or 200 by 85 or 200 by 100 or whatever hell if they used a bandy rink, which those are huge. Those are like soccer fields. I'm sure they'd figure it out. I'm sure Crosby and McDavid would just make longer passes to each other and they'd figure it out. You know what I mean? So like people always think it things have to be standardized all the time. Like, oh, the Tampa Bay Lightning's uh, first Stanley Cup championship doesn't count because it was in the bubble. Well, guess what? Everybody played in the bubble. So yeah, it does count because that's what the rules are, right? I mean, just at the time, that's the rules. Everybody plays by this set of rules, this set of constraints, you know? So it is interesting though, that they'll use the NHL ice, but it kind of makes sense too. Well, I thought the ice size was kind of significant, but I guess it's not a big deal. No, no. I don't ever remember them playing on us in the Olympics. I don't ever remember them playing on smaller ice. Uh, well, I mean, this might be the first time 2010 in Vancouver, 2002 in, um, I thought the Vancouver uh, ice was bigger. No, that was, uh, that was at uh GM place. Yeah, That's but where I the thought Canucks they expanded played. the rink. I thought they expanded the rink because doesn't international ice hockey federation like dictate that they have to be the 197 by 98? No, but they've made exceptions for this. Hmm. Yeah. Again, I've slept since then, so I must forget. I mean, I could be wrong too, and I'm saying that just so I don't have to edit out that part of the podcast later on. Like, oh, but no, there've been there've been times where they've made exceptions. Basically, if everybody agrees, then it's cool. So, one thing we talked about when talking about when to do our next retrospective or what to do our next retrospective about was Tim suggested that we do a set that actually included Olympic players in the card set. And I thought that was a great idea. Now, a couple of years back, we did uh, a podcast about the 1993-94 Fleer Power Play set. I don't feel like my opinion has changed much on that set because I love it. It's like probably my second favorite set from the 93-94 season. So it didn't really make sense to do another podcast about something that we did a podcast about not too long ago. But Tim pointed out that the 93-94 Fleer Ultra set also had cards of Olympic players. There were 20 cards of Team Canada players, 20 cards of Team USA players. Now, these were national team players who played for their respective national teams during the 93-94 season. Not all the guys in each set actually ended up on the Olympic team. One that I'll point out is Ian Moran, who was on Team USA. As you know, he played for the Penguins. I talked Penguins to him legend. Penguins legend. And I talked to him a number of years ago about that. And he said he was the last guy cut for the Olympic team. He said, but then the next day, the Penguins signed him. So he said, eh. It worked out, you know, because then he then he was in the AHL, and then like a year later, he was in the NHL. Things happen for a reason. Things work out for a reason. And so, Clear Ultra, just to give you the skinny on this set, this was the second year that Fleer produced its Ultra set for hockey. It was a 500-card set. Cards 1 through 250 were in Series 1. Cards 251 through 500 were in series two. This was 50 cards more than the previous year. So the previous year when Fleer Ultra launched in 92, 93, it was a 450 card set. Now, 
Clear continued to make its ultra set until the 96-97 season. And then the Fleer Ultra brand was reprised in 2005-2006 by Upper Deck because Upper Deck bought the basically the logo and the name Fleer and can make Ultra cards and so forth. So, um, you know, there were a lot of inserts. I'll just run through these real quick and then we'll talk about what we actually think about the set. But uh, there were 12 Adam Oates career highlights card. He was kind of like the poster boy for... 93-94 Fleer Ultra, whereas Jeremy Roenick was like the poster boy for 92-93 Fleer Ultra. So there were 12 Adam Oates highlights cards. Cards 1 through 10 were found in packs. 11 and 12 you had to mail away for. 10 All-Rookies, 18 All-Stars, 6 Award Winners, 10 Premier Pivots, 10 Prospects, 10 Red Light Specials, 10 Scoring Kings, 10 Speed Merchants. 20 wave of the future. And it was also possible to get an Adam Oates autographed card. Tim, do you want to guess what the odds are of pulling an Adam Oates autographed card? In 1993, 94. Yes. One out of 10,000. You Googled it. You Googled it. I didn't, but I'm just guessing. Yeah. One in 10,000 packs had an autographed Adam Oates Hockey card, one in 10,000 packs. And I cry if I don't get two or three autographs in a box. And here yeah. you had to buy, well, you didn't have to buy. You just, it was kind of like a, if you got one, it was like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. I mean, packs at the time were about, I think a fat pack was like 279 or 299, depending on the series. There were some fat packs with 17 cards, some with 19 cards. And then I, I want to say the packs were like maybe, 249. They were definitely north of $2 at this point or like $2 and up. So this wasn't like a $100 a box kind of product or whatever. So anyway. Well, I know the rookies, the rookie inserts, those were only in the jumbo packs. Okay. That was like the only way you could have got them. Um, and I think those were 19 cards in the jumbo pack. But okay. Yeah. Do you, do you have one of those Adam Oates autos? I don't. I've never had. I've never seen of- one. Well, I've never seen one, but I've never really had the incentive to buy one. Now, the Jeremy Roenick autographs, I think I have about four of them. And then I've somehow seen those. I've ended up with a duplicate of one, you know, just that I purchased. So um, I, I've I seen come those. across the Roenick ones every once in a while at a show. I'll see one in a case. I'll be like, huh, those were hard to find. Mm-hmm. I've never once seen an Adam Oates one. Mm-hmm. And is it because Ronick's way more popular than Adam Oates? Because I will throw out the fact that one's in the Hall of Fame and one isn't. But, you know, that might be political rather than <laughs> not to diminish anything Adam Oates ever did in his career. But still, you hear much more discussion and people talk about JR than you do about Adam Oates. So. I'm just saying, I've never physically actually seen one. I'm sure if I Googled it or went on eBay, I'd find a bunch of them, but I've never seen one live. That's just me. So did you collect this set back in 93, 94? Yes, sir. Yes, sir, I did. What was your incentive to collect this set? Um, well, I liked the previous year's version of Ultra. But for some reason, I liked even though it looks similar 
I like the design of the 93-94 set better than the 92-93. Cuz 92-93 had that kind of like blue ice kind of border on the bottom. Mm-hmm. And that was fine. It was kind of cool. But I like this one better cuz it's more of a kind of a grayish ice looking it's like a marble texture yeah it kind of looks like your granite countertop that you would find in the kitchen and that continues over onto the back too with part of the design pattern on the backs of the cards as well but i like the looks of these better for some reason and when i found them these were ones that i would pick up like if i find that found them in the store i would buy packs and I tried to put together the set. I never was able to hand collate my own set out of it. Never did track down all the U.S. Team USA and Team Canada cards. And then eventually gave up trying. So this is one that I think I have probably half of it sitting in a box somewhere. So for the very same reason that you mentioned is why I did not collect this set. Because I was a big fan of the 92-93 Fleer Ultra Hockey set. I loved everything about it. In fact, when I ranked the 92-93 sets, I have a Puck Junk article where I ranked all the 92-93 sets. I put it as, as the second best set that year. For 93-94, I put this as the second worst set for two reasons. The first reason is this just basically feels like the 92-93 design just improved on. But I remember buying a couple of packs, looking at it, and saying, you know what, this just looks like the same thing. Like you have a diagonal stripe at the bottom, making the bottom border of the card. Okay, you have a nice action photo on the front. You got the same logo on the front. But then on the back, you had the head and shoulder shot, and then the small action shot superimposed over a hockey rink. Now in 92-93, it was like an illustration of a hockey rink, which was kind of cool because it was different. And then this time, it was like just a photo of a hockey rink, which is okay. Kind of reminds me of those 66-67 Tops cards that had like the TV border, but then like the generic hockey rink in the background. Kind of reminds me of that a little bit. You had one line of stats and like their totals, but like even like the nameplate with like the bevel, it just basically looks like they said, hey, how do we make this design better? And that's what they did. And so to me, it just felt like the same set, which is why I didn't buy it. And then the other reason was because there was a lot of other stuff that I wanted to collect. Like I was always all in on upper deck every year. And we talked about 93, 94 upper deck in our last show. And I explained there why I liked it so much. But then also Fleer Power Play was another set that I really loved that year. Leaf was another set that I really loved that year. I even liked Donruss, but I just felt like it was too similar to Leaf and Leaf was a better set to me. And I mean, even that year, I went after Stadium Club and I went after Topps Premier. And this set, I bought like a pack or two and that was it. And it wasn't until like the mid 2000s when I got back into collecting hockey cards I probably bought this full set for like five bucks or eight bucks or something I mean I was buying up sets from the 90s for like between four dollars and ten dollars and it was just like a feeding frenzy of like oh yeah I never got the 95 96 Fleer Ultra set I'll buy it for 
$6 and, oh, I never got 9394 Fleer Ultra and I'll pay $8 for that. And that's probably what I did pay for it. Now it's worth a bit more, <laughs> especially could find them not bricked. See, I just felt like to me, Fleer Ultra was kind of like a more of a premium product. And at that point, I had bought Upper Deck in 1990. I had bought it in 91. I had bought it in 92. And at this point, I was like, hey, this is a little nicer product. And the previous year was kind of cool, too. And like you said, how do you improve on this? Well, you basically make it again, change the colors, double the gloss, and put gold foil stamping on it. And that is essentially the difference between 92, 93, and 93, 94, I think. Um, I thought 92, because, 93 had gold foil stamping. Yeah, I, I think there's way more on this. It's like on the front and the backs on these, on some of the cards, especially uh, on the inserts. Oh, on the inserts, yeah. But I mean, I'm looking at the base cards, and there's no gold foil stamping on the yeah, back. They did it on. They did it on front and back on a lot of the inserts. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, I understand. So even though I liked the year before, I just felt like this design was nicer. And mm -hmm. I don't know. I have some weird thing for those premier pivots for some reason. I don't know why I like those. You do or do not like them? No, I do. I don't know why I like them. Those in the red light specials. Like anytime I see them, like the inserts, if I see them in like a quarter box, I'll pick them up. I'm not sure why. Maybe like on the premier pivots, maybe it's because they have that like, like motion in the background where it's kind of all blurred out because it looks like stuff's moving. And then you have the player kind of focused on the front. And then that the uh, the red light specials is kind of like that Olin Mills sort of thing where you got the player and then they're superimposed close-up shot up in the corner. It's kind of faded out around the edges. But what, what we're all really wondering about is how you feel about speed merchants. Well, you harken back to when was that? 2017 when we did our dumb names for cards that show. <laughs> I believe that one was one of the ones on the on the list because they're speed merchants, so they're selling speed. Is that what they're doing? I, I call that a drug dealer. But that's just me. That's how I grew up, is calling speed merchants drug dealers. Not a fan of the name. The idea was it's supposed to be like the fastest skaters and scorers or whatever in the NHL. Yeah. The name could use some work. And they regurgitated that name a few times because that set came back. And I think the premier pivots did too. Yeah, it did. But yeah, like, so speed merchants just so they weren't really about drug dealers. They were uh, about fast players like Pavel Bure, Timu Solani, and Sergei Fedorov. And it had like players with like a motion blur, which was pretty cool for the time. You know, now it's pretty easy to do that in Photoshop. Like I said, I passed on it back then. I don't want to say now I like it. I mean, now I, I just have it because I try to have everything from the 90s. But like what was kind of funny was that there was like a promo sheet of cards. It was like a nine panel promo sheet. That had like cards of, let's see, Joe Juno, Sergey Fedorov, Matt Sundin, Jeremy Roenick, Mark Recchi, 
Felix Potvin, Alexei Kovalev, and Doug Gilmore. Oh, and, and they're not perforated either. You can't really tear them apart. And in the middle, there's just like the logo, and it says, you can't buy a better hockey card. I kind of laugh at that because it was like, that year, I could buy a better hockey card. I mean, yeah, these are nice cards. The problem is, is that everybody else upped their game. Like, if you think about, like, 92-93 tops and 93-94 tops, tops upped its game. If you think about 92-93 Stadium Club and 93-94 Stadium Club, again, top upped its game. Upper Deck upped its game. You had Leaf come out, which was, like, brand new. So it, it's kind of like you had, like, new players in that team territory who are like better than everything else that was out there and then like the other guys kind of up their game and Flair Ultra just kind of did like the same thing that they did the previous year and so to me I felt like they kind of got like a little left behind but then like the next years they started doing full bleed photos and you know they changed and got better I think but that's just my opinion for what it's worth I mean you got to respect the original sure and yeah, you're right. There were more options available that year of other products to, to go after. The Leaf set's a great set. I mean, I don't know if we talked about the Leaf set on, on a show before. Yeah, right before Christmas, dude. Oh, that's right. It was about <laughs> um, I mean, that's a great set. But again, I do like the Ultra set. And you were saying earlier about how much packs were. $2.69. That was the 17 card packs. Right. And those were pre-stamped that price, too, from the manufacturer. So that was the MSRP on those. I swear I paid $250 for these. I don't remember the price actually being on them. So maybe I was buying different packs, or maybe there was a different option available. But I used to be able to get these at the local Kmart, which tells you how old I am since there aren't any Kmarts anymore. But... It was a good set. I never remember buying boxes, but I would go back and I would say if I if I was to estimate how many I bought, I probably bought three boxes worth of these. Wow. With the number of packs that I would buy. But you said you never built a set, though. Nope. I think I tried to, but I never could get all of the, like I said, I never got all the Team USA or Team Canada. Um, so you bought Series 1 and Series 2. I did. Wow. Okay. And I think I was still missing at one point like four or five of the just base cards. Yeah, I was so collation was never great. You would get doubles in a box. Lots of doubles, in fact. So I want to point out the notable rookie cards, and then I want to ask you something about some of the rookies. But okay, so the notable rookies in this set, Jason Arnott, Adrian Coin, Darren McCarty, Chris Osgood and Jocelyn Tebow. But now there are three kind of interesting rookie cards in this set. Can you guess who they are? One of them you're going to probably know right away. Who did you say the notable ones were? The notable ones, as far as like players who had decent to great NHL careers. Jason yeah. Arnott, Adrian Coin, Darren McCarty, Chris Osgood, Jocelyn Tebow. Now, by the way, there's like 68 okay. rookie cards in the set because a lot of those Team USA and Team Canada guys, those were like their rookie cards, like Adrian Coyne, for instance, who was on Team Canada. Right. You're saying 
these are significant ones or these are just other interesting ones that are so now there are three other ones that i want to mention that okay. are of guys who did not have significant nhl careers but also have rookie cards in this set and i want to talk about them because okay. the three of them are interesting and they have rookie well, cards in this set well it's not chris simon then because i was going to say him i think he's in there didn't brent good old brent gretzky the not so great one have a rookie card in there too Wow, I, I think I remember Brent Gretzky having a rookie card because if I'm not mistaken, he was on the Tampa Bay Lightning. Uh-huh. Like I could picture the card in my head. I swear it was from that set. Yeah, Brent Gretzky um, had a rookie card. And uh, who was the other one? You said Chris Simon? Chris Simon's in that set. I know that. Yeah, Chris Simon also has a rookie card. Um, Laviolette's in there. Yeah. Right? P-Lav. Yeah. Peter Laviolette. Yeah, he's, he's got a Team USA card, I think. Yeah. Yes, he was the captain of Team USA during the 1994 Winter Olympics. What's interesting is that Laviolette played 12 games for the Rangers in 88-89, and he didn't have any NHL cards because when you only played 12 games during the 88-89 season, you didn't get a hockey card. Now, if you played 12 games in the 90-91 season, you probably got 11 different hockey cards somehow, right? Because that's just what it was like. But um, he didn't play in the NHL after those 12 games in 88-89, but because he has a card in the 93-94 Fleer Ultra set, that's considered his rookie card, even though he's not pictured with an NHL team because of the weird ways people classify rookie cards, right? Yeah, especially back then. Yeah, um, so... Yeah, so he has a he has a rookie card in this set as well as Fleer Power Play, which also has cards of Team USA and Team Canada players. He also has a card in the 93-94 Tops Premier Team USA inserts, but that's an insert card, and most people don't consider insert cards rookie cards or potential to be rookie cards. I do, but that's just me. But yeah, Peter Laviolette has a card in this set, and as you know, he went on to become a very good NHL head coach. Coincidentally, he's now coaching the Rangers 35 years after he played for the Rangers. Isn't the younger, lesser Lindros in there too? Yeah, uh, Brett Lindros is also in the set. I mean, there's a lot of interesting cards. I mean, not a rookie card, but they have a card of Brian Trottier who made that short comeback in like 93-94. He was on the Penguins the previous years for the Cups. Right, but I mean, his last stat on the back is 91-92 because then he retired for 92-93 and then he came back for 93-94. There's another coach in there too. Jim Montgomery, maybe? Yeah, Jim Montgomery has a rookie card in this set as well. Both coaches in the All-Star game. Yeah, how about that, right? So can I tell you who these last two interesting players are? Because I don't think you'll ever guess them in like... I won't If say they're not those guys, I probably won't get them, Okay. So. One is goaltender Dave Littman. David yeah, I Littman. never would have guessed that one. Yeah. Littman played one game for the Sabres in 1991. He played one game for the Sabres in 91-92. And then he played one game for the Lightning in 92-93. And then he has a rookie card in 93-94. Clear Ultra. Actually, that's his only rookie card. That's his only oh. rookie card. That's his only card that's not an insert, that's not a minor league set, 
and that's not a team set, right? Because he has like minor league cards and he has two common minor sets, classic draft picks and edge ice. And then he has an all rookie in the same set. So you're probably wondering, Sal, why are you talking about David Littman? I'm going to tell you why. Because after he retired from playing pro hockey in 2001, he went on to work for Electronic Arts in part of their EA Sports division. And he basically went to them and said, hey, I played pro hockey. I feel like I could help make your hockey video games better. And from what I understand, they started him out as a game tester, which is the worst job you can have working for a video game company. But eventually he moved up and then he became the producer for the NHL games from like 2007 to 2014. And on his LinkedIn page, he even talks about how during that time, NHL 07, NHL 08, NHL 09, whatever, they'd win like all these video game awards and be recognized as like best sports video game of the year and stuff like that. So David Littman was a producer at EA Sports. That's just kind of an interesting thing, especially if you like video games or hockey video games and hockey cards. That's just kind of a neat little crossover, wouldn't you think? Only Sal Berry would know that tidbit of information. But you feel better knowing that tidbit of information, don't you? Yep. And just like our show about Leaf, only a mere month ago, I will probably forget that tidbit as soon as we hang up. Okay. So the <laughs> other... Play. I only have so much room in this big dome of mine. I can't fit all of that in there. Listen, I'm the guy who like would pour over the instruction books and find like names of, oh, that guy played in the NHL, right? Maybe I could talk to him about this game or whatever. So, you know, when I saw his name pop up in like certain NHL game instruction book credits, I'd be like, that guy played in the NHL. Also, I remember his 93-94 classic card because... He was wearing a Rochester Americans jersey, which is a very nice looking jersey. So the other player I want to point out, rookie card for this guy. And he actually did play in the NHL, but the card doesn't picture him as an NHL player. It pictures him as a Team Canada player. And that is Brad Turner. And now you're thinking, why would I care about Brad Turner, right? Three games for the Islanders, I think in 91-92 was his NHL call-up. Turner went on to work in movies and TV shows. He was one of the hockey coordinators for the hockey film Mystery Alaska, and he was also the hockey double for Russell Crowe's character in Mystery Alaska. He then went on to work in a bunch of TV shows and movies like he would like maybe play a hockey double in something or a referee like he was a referee in the Mighty Ducks Game Changers TV show. He does like a lot of stunts where he like plays like a cop or like a SWAT team guy or like a thug, but he's also acted in some TV movies or some movies in like small roles and stuff like that. So he's one of those rare people that has a page on hockey DB. And he has a page on IMDb. So if you like movies, you like hockey, you like hockey movies, Brad Turner is kind of significant in that realm. Wow. That's that's just, that's another one of those weird, obscure things that just 
that's not even on the same clipboard. Like that's somewhere else, man. That's great information. I like that. Far out, man. You're not going to get that on any other show. See, people, if you're listening, you just got rewarded. That's like getting a big bowl of ice cream without even asking for it. So I interviewed Brad Turner when I did my article for the Hockey News on the making of Mystery Alaska. You know, I watched the credits. I looked for names of hockey people, hockey coordinators, hockey whatever. I look them up on HockeyDB. I try to find them. And I located him. And, you know, we talked. And he basically told me, yeah, I played three games for the Islanders. And I would start looking to see, does this guy have any hockey cards? And I was like, oh, my God. He actually has a rookie card, even though it's not with the Islanders. So. Yeah, it, it is just kind of interesting. We think of like these athletes as like they play hockey and then they retire and then they go into finance or accounting. Or maybe if they're one of the more interesting ones, they go into color commentary or whatever, right? Studio analyst, color commentator, between the glass reporter, whatever, right? They still stay right. somehow involved in the game in like the media aspect, right? But then once right. in a while, you get somebody who just is like, now he does acting and he still does acting. And then you have, like I said, like Dave Littman, who worked for a video game company for a number of years and took what was already a great thing and, and made it better. And that being the NHL hockey games. Yeah. And then, of course, you got Peter Laviolette, who I think will be in the Hall of Fame as a coach one day. I used to do that kind of stuff for music. I would read the liner notes of everything I ever bought whether it was a record, a tape, eventually CDs. I'd read all the liner notes, the lyrics to the songs, but everything, like, you know, who the director was and the producer and the sound engineer and this and that. And yeah, I'd go through all of them. And then I would look at other records and CDs and stuff that I had and see if they had the same producers or if they had the same sound engineers and where it was recorded and all that kind of stuff, just to kind of get a feel for like, this was recorded here, and here's another album that sounds sort of like that one. It was re also recorded there. You know, back before something called the internet existed where you could just look that up. So yeah, your knowledge of this stuff and the way you tie all of that in, like it's just a giant puzzle that you would never hear. And honestly, who's going to bring those guys up ever? Those are common cards that are getting thrown in a box and no one ever sees them ever again. Right? Only here. Will you hear a feature on players like that? <laughs> I mean, really, it's true. Like nowhere else are you going to hear that kind of stuff. And I think that's cool because you have that knowledge. And I have some knowledge, but man, you got me beat on that one. Well, we like different things and we like some of the same things, you know. But I mean, if we all knew the same things, life would be kind of boring. So it's always interesting to find out those things, you know, those stories behind the stories, you know, and uh, of course I like to tell those kinds of stories, but it's always just kind of fun to find those connections. And especially like when you find out what a player has been doing after they retire, right? Cause then you just kind of forget about them. Well, especially yeah. like bit part guys and role player type guys that may or may not have gotten a shot in the big show. I mean, sometimes these guys like toiled in the minor leagues for a long time, but they were, super popular or super pivotal on their teams that they played on, but yet hockey fans don't know who they are. So I think right. that's good that we shine a light on that. Another thing about this set, my criticism of that set, because even back then I collected penguin cards, there were no rookies for the penguins in that set. And you brought up Ian Moran because he eventually signed with the penguins. 
but he wasn't considered a penguin in the set because he was in the Team USA cards. But yeah, there were no penguins in that this set, like off of the checklist. But there was a card of Mike Ramsey in a penguins uniform, which I always found funny. Because to me, looking at the cards, now again, much younger at that time, looking at all these players on that roster, like the Marty Strakas and the Kevin Stevens and Tockett was on that team and Mario and Yager. And so you see the players and you're like, you relate to the players at that age. And I always remember seeing that Mike Ramsey card and looking at him going, how old is this guy? This guy's super old. That's one card that always popped out in my head is the Mike Ramsey card. Dude, you know who looked super old on a hockey card to me back when I was a kid? I'm going to tell you the card and you're going to, you're going to know exactly which one I'm talking about. 9091 Bowman Reggie Lemeland. Oh, yes. Close up side of his head. Like he's yes. sitting on the bench. He looks like Mr. Wilson from Dennis the Menace. Um, yeah, I can, I can see that. He's got the big mustache and the receding headline and kind of a scowl on his face a little bit. That's <laughs> just like, wow, that dude's like a hundred. <laughs> he looks like a coach on that card. Yeah. Like he looks like he's sitting there looking out, like scowling at the guys on the ice for whatever reason they did something and. They shouldn't have done something. Yeah, like that Mike Babcock look of disapproval or that Mike Keenan look of yeah. disapproval. But the Ramsey card, and I, I think it might just be the mustache. Like the mustache that he had on that card threw me off. But Mike Ramsey, like who thinks of Mike Ramsey as a penguin? Certainly not I. Well, you know what's annoying about this set is that the cards in the first series are not organized by team, but the cards in the second series are are organized by team. Whereas yeah, that's in, weird, isn't it? It is because like I like 92-93 they were organized by team and I like that. And then 93-94 I'm like paging through this and I'm like okay, we got a Brune. We got a Brune who's now with the Stars, we got an Oiler and we're like, "Whoa." And then, so that just makes it harder to like find a certain card of a certain player because they're not in any sort of team order. So, yeah. I wonder why they did that. I don't know. Like, what I mean, was the reasoning? You go through the set checklist and it's just random. And then all of a sudden you're going to make series two and you go, well, let's group these all together. You know, one thing I noticed though, as far as teams go, is that most of the team sets have between 18 and 20 cards each. The Panthers have 14 cards, which is low. There's no Panthers in Series 1. There's only two Ducks in Series 1, and it's just players who've been drafted, so they're still in their old uniforms, and there's a little tag that says Expansion Draft on it, like a little pink oval that says Expansion Draft. And so there's no Panthers in Series 1. There's only 14 Panthers overall in the set, but most of the teams have like between 18 and 20 cards each. So it's pretty consistent with its representation of U.S. teams Canadian teams and whatnot. And I thought that was, you know, I don't want to say kind of nice, but yeah, I guess kind of nice. Do you consider the checklist as cards of the players that are pictured on them? I consider them as cards of the players pictured, but I found it really annoying that trading card DB counted the checklists because it mentioned Pittsburgh Penguins. So it counted the two checklists as Penguins cards, even though it might picture a penguin, it might not. But like, 
Yeah, look, they do they... that with a lot on there. You'll find that a lot on the checklist. If it's got a team on it that's highlighted somehow, it'll be part of that team set. I don't do my stuff that way, but these, because these actually have a player picture on them, I guess this is a bigger question. Like if you have a checklist and it features a player on it, do you consider it one of the player's cards or do you just consider it a checklist? All right, I'm going to answer your question and I'm going to ask you a question. Yes, I consider it one of those player's cards because I think it was 92-93 Ultra had a Chris Chelios checklist, if I remember correctly, where he's like ghosted in the background and like the checklist boxes are superimposed over him, if I remember correctly. And I do have that as part of my Chelios collection. I think it was 92-93 Ultra. I think you're right. Didn't that have Yager on the back? Because I have it in my Yager book. Oh, there you go. Now, my question for you, going back to the Ian Moran discussion, do you collect cards of Ian Moran with Team USA, even though that was before his time with the Penguins? No. Because he's not pictured with the Penguins. Yeah, because I'm team first. Gotcha. I'm a true team collector. Does your Penguins collection also extend to Muskegon Lumberjacks and Cleveland Lumberjacks? Uh, it does. Okay. Actually, I have an extensive pile of both Cleveland and Muskegon and a ton of Wilkes-Barre. Oh, yeah. Wilkes-Barre. I even have some Wheeling Nailers cards. Jeez. Yeah. See, I'm hardcore. I think I got a Wheeling card of uh, Scott Darling somewhere in my collection. There's not a lot. They didn't put out very many team sets over the years. And they have had players sprinkled throughout some minor league sets here and there. But it's few and far between. Any last thoughts about this set before we wrap it up? Because I think I've pretty much said everything. I mean, come on, if I'm trotting out information about guys who played three games, but... One went on to work in Hollywood and the other one went to work in video games. If I'm trotting out that kind of information, I've pretty much exhausted all my interesting notes about this set. No, it's hard for me to even comment on that. Call it nonplussed. Call it what you want. But that came out of left field and I was like, wow, okay. I can't compete with that kind of information. That's crazy. But it's a great set, especially if you're going for older 90 sets. I think there's a lot of value to be had in there. Yeah, there's not a ton of rookie cards in there of impact-type players. But, you know, there's 60-some Hall of Famers, when you look back on this, that are all included in that set. Um, they're really nice looking. So, you know, if you haven't built one of these yourself, you know, it's certainly something to, to look at as adding to your collection. Just be careful buying boxes if you find old boxes because they will be bricked. There is no doubt they will be bricked. Yeah, Ultra was like the first set to go with that UV coating on both sides. I remember that being a selling point during the 92-93 season. Like, they were coated on both sides with UV coating. And, yeah, part of the, the problem with that is that... Uh, Looks great, doesn't last. Yeah, well... Heat and pressure basically makes the uh, UV coating bond to other surfaces with UV coating. So you think about cards being packed in too tightly. I did an article about bricking for the BCW Supplies blog. I'll link to that. Cards brick for a couple of reasons, but I mean, really, you think about cards that were like worthless in the 90s. 
these were pretty worthless in the 90s. Now I'm talking about if they were just opened. You opened a bunch of them. You ended up with a thousand commons. You packed them together in a box as tight as you could because you were just storing them, right? Well, that pressure coupled with maybe being put in a basement where it's a little damp or an attic where it might get hot. And so basically what that does then is that you got your heat, you got your pressure, and then that's going to cause the chemical reaction. And then the, the cards are going to bond together. It's almost like that UV coating bonds to itself. And then when you pull the cards apart, that's why you get that paper loss. Yeah, and it happens a lot. A lot. You run the risk anytime you go back that far on, on stuff like this. Heck, 10 years is like the shelf life on gloss. After that, you're rolling the dice. But yeah, I would definitely recommend this as a set. Especially if you're a completist and you got to have everything from that time frame. So, yeah, definitely a fun set to own. I recommend it now. I mean, even though I say there are better sets to collect, collect what you like. Even though I said this was my ninth out of 10th favorite sets from that year, I still have it in pages. And there are sets from that year that I don't have in pages just because I don't have the shelf space, like 93, 94 Pinnacle. I don't have that set. In pages, I do have it. I just never bothered putting it in pages because ain't got room for that. So got to be selective. All right, then I think we're good. I think we're good. All right. Well, thank you for listening to the Puck Junk Hockey Podcast. As always, if you've enjoyed the show, please be sure to like and subscribe. Please leave us a review wherever you listen to this podcast. Please give us a follow on social media. And until next time, collect what you like. For more hockey goodness, follow us on Twitter at PuckJunk.